So he was out, yeah. you know, killing himself to provide for us. And this church planning thing, it was an accident. And I'm sure he was struggling to find his identity as a church planner at that point. He was, you know, busting his butt to get out there and, and do everything he could for his family, but it left us kind of uh, alone. Welcome. You're listening to The Glass House, hosted by Lifeway. We're Ben and Lindley Mandrell, and we have conversations with leaders who have experienced the stress of ministry and have sensed a spotlight on their personal lives. We want to encourage ministry families and provide a glimpse inside their glass house. And before we start this episode, I want to invite you to participate in the conversation. If you have feedback to offer, a general question for Lindley or me, or if there's a topic you'd like for us to tackle in the future, email us at president at lifeway.com. We read every one of those emails. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Glass House, and we're excited today to be talking about boundaries in ministry. We have Sean and Billy Jane Sears on on the show with us from Boston, who started Grace Church, Mm -hmm. and the speed of their ministry early on almost ruined their marriage and their family. Mm -hmm. I actually remember that we, they were the first couple we talked to in our church planning journey when we were living down in Orlando, under the care of First Baptist Orlando, Mm -hmm. They had us meet with them. I mean, we had to do it virtually, but that they were so helpful to our journey. They said so many things about mistakes they made early on, how they overestimated their ability to to do it all and keep a healthy marriage and family. And their story is honest, vulnerable, and sobering. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to love what they have to say today. Well, on the podcast today, we have awesome people. Sean and Billy Sears, who started a church in the Boston area, Grace Church, and their story, particularly of the early years and the emotional toll it took on their marriage and their family, you just got to hear it. And so thank you guys for coming on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Well, we want to jump right in to your story because uh, as Lindley and I, when we first heard it, we resonated with some of the challenges you guys faced in your marriage and the strain on your family as you started a church. So Take us back to those early days and just start telling some of the story of what it was like getting started. Uh, We didn't move out here to start. uh, I'm not from the New England area. We're both born and raised in Central Florida. Um, We started dating in college in Missouri, got married, then moved to Denver, where we did uh, eight years of student ministry, moved out to Boston so I could be a professor at at a, a small Christian college here in the city. We just settled into the community and did what we think any Christian ought to do, and that's to make a positive impact in your community. So... Billy Jane got involved in the school. I got involved in the school. We started coaching Little League. And then uh, our non-religious neighbors across the street had a friend of theirs attempt suicide. And she said, you need God. My neighbor knows him. I'll be right back. So she ran over to our house and said, you need to come to the hospital to visit my friend. We did. She said to her friend, you guys need to be in a Bible study. Or she said to her friend, you need to be in a Bible study. If Sean and Billy Jane started one, would you go to it? She said, yeah, if you and your husband will. And she said, okay. Sean. So I was like, holy cow, I guess, I guess we're starting this Bible study. That grew into, it, it, uh, it, out, it outgrew our living room. And uh, Billy Jane, our, we only have 630 square feet on each floor, two floors. Yeah. And uh, when we got about 20 people, she was like, holy cow, that's too many people. So we moved it to two nights. And when it started outgrowing both of those nights, that's when we decided to start going on Sundays. So that's kind of the story of how of, of those years leading up to the launch of our, of our church. Yes. We did it without a core team, without funding, with just 
No prospectus. Nope. Our little minivan, our house. um, That's all we had. You broke all the rules. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've told people we're the most accidental church planters (laughs) I've ever. When when your non-religious neighbors are asking you to start a Bible study and it just keeps growing, that's it's a God thing. It's a God. Yeah, but we could never like it. We've talked about if we tried to start our church the way we started it. Like if we tried to do that again, it, it wouldn't go. Right. So you you start this church and you realize quickly that it becomes an all-consuming project. Billy, talk a little bit about from your perspective about what that was like when the church started taking off. Because you also had children. I mean, young young children at that time. Yeah. We did. We have um, we had all three kids at that time. Um, I had just had Ryan. Um, I think he was about three on our on our opening yeah. weekend. Um, no, no, he was two. He's born in 2003, and this okay, was 2005. Yeah. Um, we, uh, I think what also plays in the mix is that um, Sean was still working for the college um, that brought us out here. Um, and um, that working relationship was not healthy. He was working with the for his his regular hours at the college, and then coming home and doing church work as well. Yeah. Um, and our kids, although he was also coaching our kids and being in the community as much as possible, um, I just at times, a lot of times, felt like I was a single mom raising our three kids and taking care of everything at home. Um, and so it was um, a struggle. Uh, I I felt like he was cheating on me with the church and. Um, because I was traveling on the weekends trying to raise funding for the church. Yeah. Yes, for for us to be able to live, um, it, it was it was a really difficult time. And then he lost his job at the college. Looking back, and we've talked about it um, himself. How do you say that again? Yeah, we find his, our identity in our success in, and, the, in the in the in his vocation. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the curse, right? Like you you you'll work by the sweat of your brow on the field, and her desire should be toward the husband. So I find my identity in my vocational success, and, and she and finds, how he provides for us. So he was out, yeah. you know, killing himself to provide for us to um, find his identity again because it was stripped away. Um, and this church planning thing, it was an accident. And I'm sure he was struggling to find his identity as a church planner at that point. So yeah, um, he was you know busting his butt to get out there and and do everything he could for his family. But um, it left us um, kind of uh, alone um, on the sidelines. Yeah, and it was a really dark time. Um, we did have a few town friends. Um, we did not have any Christian friends, um, and we felt very lonely, very isolated. One of the interesting parts of your story, Sean, is that you're one of the most passionate evangelists I know. And you shared this with me. In your mind, you were out trying to save souls. You were out trying to like expand the kingdom. You didn't have time to think about all the stuff that Billy was asking you to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the, uh, the excuse, is that uh, you, can, you can hide as a workaholic in ministry and be completely justified in your own mind because I'm doing this for God. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this for anybody else. I'm doing this for God. And then Billy Jane felt bad uh, confronting me about the imbalance of the way that I was spending my time because she felt like she was putting herself in front of God if she was doing that, or maybe I made you feel like you were doing that. I, I think that he is a very giving, very passionate person, It's it's, but he um, he looks for the people that need that need him most. 
And he didn't realize that um, we needed him as much as we did. And because yeah. I did try, I, I tried to um, let him follow that passion. And we tried to do it with him as much as we could. But um, I thought she had it covered, but there was too much for her to cover by herself. She can't be both mom and dad. It's a long story, and I don't know how much of this you need, but um, I was traveling back from Colorado in a vehicle we repossessed from one of our uh, teenagers, teenagers our group, yeah. that had purchased it. So it was perfect timing. We needed this vehicle. Our, our van was on its last leg. And um, I decided, oh, it's a, you know, I'll kill two birds with one stone, go fly out, visit my sister for her birthday, and drive the vehicle back. Um, but like maybe... Two months leading up to that, I kept talking to Sean about, um, hey, you need to figure out um, what I need tag-wise to get this vehicle across country. Um, because this vehicle is for all of us. It's not just for me. I'm not. This isn't self-serving. Um, I need to know if I'm going to be okay driving this back. Um, and I didn't prioritize that because there were so many other things that we were doing to get the church going. Correct. If I can hop in. Absolutely. So it would, at this point... I mean, you mentioned that our church had taken off, but it it actually took four years to get to our first 100 people. So during that time, people were looking at our church going, well, what's wrong with you guys? You guys have been going for three years and you only have 80 people, 70 people. So here we are, year four, there's only 100 people. Uh, My wife and I are the only people tithing. We're We're the only ones giving. There's no resources. Churches are starting to cut us off now for support because now that we're 100, Half of the churches that were supporting us were the same size. And so they're going, well, you're the same size as us. Why are we giving you money? So we're losing support. I can't figure out how to get the church beyond 100 people. People are telling me I'm not doing good job, not doing a good enough job as a pastor. Call this guy. He started the same time you did. His church is already 300. Now, no one's saying that I stink at this, but everybody is saying you're failing. And then Billy Jane wants me to go make a bunch of phone calls and do internet research for a stupid temporary tag on a Durango. I'm like, well, I, I, I don't, that is not the most important thing here to me at the time. It, was, it wasn't about me prioritizing the Durango. Mm-hmm. It was about the priority uh, that, that she had in my heart. And truthfully, the Durango was just, it was, it was proof that right now she wasn't the most important thing to me. Me feeling better about myself, me being a successful church planner, me getting this church off the ground, me finding a way to provide for our family as all these other church, like these kind of things. And then and then me being able to justify the lack of priority she had in my heart by being able to say, but I'm serving God, I'm serving God, I'm serving God, I'm serving God. And it gave me an excuse to de-emphasize her, her value in my life. So Billy, tell us what happened with that Durango. Um, so he... Um consulted the teenager that we repossessed the truck from on um, the topic. And the the teenager said, oh, you can just drive it across country. It'll be fine. And um, I drove it across country and I got pulled over a few times. Um, Three different, I was like, there's no way in the world anybody's going to. So she wrote in the window, uh, temporary, like, I don't remember what it was, but it was like a piece of paper that she put in the back window. And I was like, that'll be good enough. I got pulled over three times, but I never got a ticket and I never, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, I know what happened. But, you smiled and cried. <laughs> probably. Um, I made it as far as Delaware, where his parents lived. And I knew crossing George Washington Bridge um, with the tolls and, and all of the, uh, the the police activity there that it would be really I would definitely get pulled over again, and um, and I called him and I said, "I'm I'm not coming home. Um, you're going to have to come and get me if you want me to come home. Come and get me, and you're going to have to figure out this Durango thing." Um, I remember it a little bit different. Okay, you go. 
Um, you called and said, I'm not coming home. I'm not coming home. Yeah. And I, it was, you were turning up the heat underneath that burner. I think intentionally and um, wisely, maybe not the right, doesn't matter. The fault was on mine because of the way I had made you feel for months leading up to that. Yeah. And then um, she wanted me to feel that, how hurt she was. And I think that that was um, definitely a God thing. I don't think that looking back, I wasn't thinking, ooh, if if I do this, then he'll yeah. recognize that I, yeah. I need his attention. It was definitely a God thing. But anyways, um, he came and got me. Um, and we came home and we had a long conversation. But it it didn't end there. It was an ongoing thing. It was, we need to learn how to make this work. We need to fight for this. And at that point, I was ready to give up the fight. I'm like, this is, I've just been working too much too long. Um, uh, but I credit Sean for us still being together because he he fought for our marriage. He um, he He learned how to, he learned how I, I, process things, and he figured out how um, he could make things work accordingly. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was your love language. Because for me, I'm a words of affirmation guy. So as long as I say I love you or say I'm sorry, that should be good enough. Because that's all I've ever wanted from her is just to say, I love you. You're a great husband. You're a really great guy. And I really like you. And you're, you're awesome. Like, I, that's all I need, man. That fills up my tank. And she's an acts of service. So I'm saying, I love you. I love you. You're like, you're the number one thing in my life. But there was, there was, there was no acts of, there was nothing I was doing that was consistent with the words that I was saying. And so the words that I was saying stopped meaning anything. And she didn't want me to hear, she didn't want to hear me say again, I love you or I'm sorry. I'm sick of your I love you's and I'm sick of your I'm sorry's. You need to stink and do something to help me. The Dodge Durango story is one of my favorite stories we've heard on The Glass House because it's so relatable. Every ministry family understands these little things that get left off the to-do list that communicate big messages. You're not important to me. These things you're asking me to do are stupid. I've got bigger fish to fry. Why are you weighing me down? I'm trying to grow the church. All these messages can really throw toxic fluid right into the, the marriage And I think Billy did a good job of expressing her frustration that one day she just put her foot down. Well, I think the thing that we appreciated what she was saying is that she felt guilty. And whether that's the right term or not is to be determined. But she felt guilty asking him to do these things because she knew how busy he was. She knew the pressure he was carrying. And so she continued to carry this pressure on her own. But really, she needed him to do that for her. And so she was caught in in between you know, a rock and a hard place of, well, do I do it myself and become resentful or do I ask him to do it when he's already really, really pressurized? It was a wake-up call moment for them. It was almost like God stationed those police officers so that she would get pulled over multiple times so that Sean would have to recognize that his failure to follow through on a little detail was now costing his wife a massive amount of emotional energy. And I felt really convicted in that story because I am chief of sinners in this regard, those little things are big things in marriage. And when you're running a church, you minimize them. When she called him and said, I'm not coming home. I mean, she, he said he fell to the ground 
and just wept and then called his dad and said, I think Billie Jane is not coming home. And um, it was a really impactful story, you know, how, how hard it hit him just all of a sudden in that moment. And not only did it hit him hard, but he now proactively initiated conversations about boundaries. Okay, this isn't going to work. This is not sustainable. So what are the new rules of engagement? And I think that's a great takeaway from this episode is if you're feeling that is happening in your own marriage, it's time to sit down and renegotiate. What does the future look like? Let me ask a question right here, because we hear this a lot. We've experienced this in our marriage, but there's always somebody that's an enabler in dysfunction. And Billy, it sounds like as you confess, like you were enabling Sean's behavior and then the Durango just put you over the edge. Like no more. What caused you to finally get to the point where you said, because I think some of our listeners are probably there, like, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know if I was intentional about it. It seemed, looking back, it looks like it was all an accident or, uh, I don't know. I think I was just exhausted. Um, if it, being in ministry, um, is, is exhausting emotionally, physically. Um, but I was being both mom and dad to our kids, um, carpooling, doing all sorts of activities with them and with their schools and the church and, I kids hadn't been in a service and, for, for months. Yeah. I was always working with the kids, which was fine. But I think I was just exhausted, and I decided I, I can't do this anymore. Honestly, it's like a car motor. When it's, when it's not operating well, you can ignore it for a long time. But at some point, it starts to over, overheat, and it just stops in the middle of the road. And that's because you weren't taking care of it all along. And the Durango, I think, was when our relationship kind of overheated, and she just pulled it over on the side of the road. Looking back, we didn't have a good support system. Um, our parents right. were good support systems for us, but they lived my, you know. Out of state. Yeah. Um, we did not have a good local support system. Um, we did not have um, the coaching that we later received. We didn't mm-hmm. have, uh, we were isolated. And I think in this I think God just orchestrated everything and emptied us out um, so that we he could fill us back up with what would the drive that we needed to keep going and to to fight for our marriage. It became a greater priority to you to communicate where you were along the way. And to stop feeling guilty about telling me to slow down or to stop or that you needed more time, you felt like that was a sign of weakness to say that you needed me to help. You know what I mean? I I feel like you tried working overtime to compensate because you were just as much a part of this church plan as I was just in a different way. And you stopped feeling guilty for needing your husband to be the stinking husband. Yeah. And I think we do need to have to get to dig in and to get dirt under our fingernails. We all have to do that personally. But if we had a support system, that would have gone a long way. Yeah, and we were both raised uh, in a Christian tradition that devalued the role of counseling. And to seek counseling uh, was a sign of weakness. And I'm a pastor, I don't go to counseling. And it was at that time that we went, there's a, a large church somewhere in Texas, I think it's in the Houston area, that used to provide free counseling for pastors. And, and I would say that that was a huge value added to us. It, it helped us learn how to communicate um, our dashboard before the car overheated. 
what about the pastor's wife's potential and capacity? <laughs> you know, wh- where is that in the equation? What I was nervous about going in was that I was going to be expected to be um, that pastor's wife that was always there um, meeting everyone's needs um, at all of the services, looking, you know, prim and proper. And being an outgoing person, like having everyone over in my home. I'm not that kind of person. Um, I'm an introvert, and I didn't understand how God was going to use me in in this position. Um, So Sean and I had some talks, and I told him that. I said, I'm not going to be that pastor's wife that speaks and that um, organizes all these things, and I, I can't do that because it will um, empty my gas tank so quickly, I will not have enough left over for my kids, from from my family. And so um, we figured out, he was like, just just come and be a part of the church family. Um, that, so that's what I started doing. And, and I found my niche. I, I found that I loved hanging out with the kids and um, I loved working with the kids. So that was my niche and it, it worked out really well because I was able to do it with my kids. Early on, we figured out that we're not planting this church apart from our kids. We're planting this church with our family. Our whole family is planting this church. So we did things together as a family with our church. Um, Anytime there was an activity, it was something we did together, all of us. Um, So it wasn't, we, we tried not to separate that. And we talked to our kids about that, how, hey, isn't this exciting that God wants us to, to, to have all these people over and, and, or go and do this movie night? Or So um, I think I found, so in answer to your question, I hope, I, I found my niche, something that I really enjoy doing within our church family. I don't understand why pastor's wives feel like they have to do something that is Totally outside their 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 personality style, um, and maybe they don't feel that way. But I I always felt that way. So I found my niche. I, my my husband was supportive in that, um, and then I found um, then I set up boundaries too. So we did things together as a family for our church plant to the extent that we were able. When I was at my limit, when the kids were at their limit we would take a step back, which was a blessing for me because I like, I'm an introvert. I like being at home in my in my safe space. Um, I don't know how other women would do that if, if with their different personality styles, but um, I think that's what helped me enjoy ministry. And, and our kids also, um, our kids, by the grace of God, um, are are following him and have a personal relationship with him and are still um, active in their local churches and what a blessing that is and I I hope that we were um, the way that we did ministry together as a family helped them uh, do that. Can I share a couple of those boundaries that she? Yeah. Yes. Right. One of those is that our house wasn't going to be the second location for the church. So we we had one Bible study or like a life group at our house every week, um, but our house wasn't going to be the church building. So even before we had a church building, if I needed to meet up with people, I would meet them at Panera Bread 
is what I did. And the other thing was that she wasn't going to be, uh, this is just the way our marriage is. I know a lot of couples, they both have a spiritual gift of pastoring, shepherding, uh, but but Billy Jane did not have that desire. And so I said, um, if this is us, God's calling, then it's you he's calling also, and it has to fit with who he created you to be. So she didn't go to everything. So if we had a church event and she didn't want to go to it, that was okay. I just said, the only thing I would ever ask of you is to do what anybody else who's going to be a member of our church, be faithful and find some place to serve. And, and she did. And I didn't expect her to be a free staff person. She didn't have the bandwidth for that. And so I, I needed to be okay not treating her like an extra staff person. I think those were a couple of boundaries that we set up. No, that's good. Yeah. So if you were too tired for something, you weren't going to go because you needed to be healthy. Now she always made church. I mean, she was always at church. Don't get me wrong. She never skipped that. But if we were doing an an outreach event and and she didn't have the bandwidth for it, it was okay for her to not be there. I thought it was interesting that Sean and Billy had to get to a place of an understanding of how many events in their home was enough. Similar to having these unspoken ideas of what a pastor's wife is, one of those is hospitality. And so for us, we love having people in our home. I know we interviewed the Reeds, and they talked about their houses. Or, you know, the door is a revolving door. People are always in and out. But I think it needs to be okay when when the wife says, "I this is not my this is not my strong suit. I don't love to be hospitable. It does stress me out or or things like that. That needs to be okay, too. I think couples have to communicate early on about how frequent that revolving door operates because you're right. I, I'm different than you and together we come together and say, okay, what is sustainable for us? And I, I think a lot of that is just trial and error and learning what fits because couples, I think, compare themselves to other couples and think we should be more like them. We should have people over more, but you really have to make it your own and do it the way it feels healthy for you and your family. But in the spirit of putting down boundaries, like this episode is talking about, I think it needs to be just boundaries within your own couple. Like don't compare to what anyone else does because it's just not the same. You said earlier that you grew up in a tradition that didn't value counseling many of us did. What do you say to a couple out there that's really struggling, they're spinning their wheels, and they're just not going to counseling? I would point them to scripture where it says, wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors. There's two things found in the multitude of counselors, wisdom and safety. And the counselors are just other people that are smarter than you, uh, that are speaking into you, right? And you can call that counseling, you can call it mentoring, you can call it coaching, I don't care what you call it, but there's somebody who has a healthier marriage that needs to be speaking into your marriage. That's just biblical. Uh, Both of us are smarter than either one of us. So I know that the best version of me as a husband is the husband who's getting his information for three or four other husbands that have been doing this longer than I have, that have the kind of marriage I want mine to be. And I'm allowing those people to speak into my life. Often that is a counselor, somebody who's been trained, not to tell me how to be a dad, but I think the value of the counselor for me has been that they ask the kind of questions that help me figure out what God's already trying to do in my heart. So Mm -hmm. what a counselor does is they give me a shovel. That's what they do. Their questions are a shovel that allow me to dig deeper into the way I feel and what God's doing and what I feel I'm hearing Him in my heart say to me and what I'm, what I, and, and, and how this is affecting my marriage. And with those questions that they ask me, I'm able to dig up what God's wanting me to do better. Uh, so I, I, 
truthfully, when I look at the people in my past that do not value counseling, they make poor leadership decisions because of that. I mean, it's not just counseling. It's not just a therapist. It's that whole attitude of, uh, I need to be bouncing every, I don't think any pastor ought to make any significant decision without running that by two or three other people that they respect. You make bad decisions. I, I got a text this morning from a guy who said, I'm resigning on Sunday. Do you know any other church that needs me? Turns out he had a, he had a, a confrontational board meeting last night. And the way he feels is making him like he wants to resign, but he hasn't run that by a single mentor, a single counselor. And he's about mm. to do serious damage to his wife and kids. And they're going to grow up hating ministry simply because he's making decisions that are uninformed, that are emotional. Uh, and I, I think our emotions lie to us all the time. And what a counselor does is help us see through the fog of our emotions and we can make better decisions. So another thing I would tell um, a prospective church planter or if they're just getting started is to be honest or authentic with everyone, but um, transparent with a few. So you have your um, – growing up in ministry, um, you did see – pastors and their families who were sat, sat on a pedestal. And nobody can live up to all of those expectations. It's it's daunting. It's it's not even what God called us to, to do. If, if we were perfect, we would be in heaven. We wouldn't still be here. So I think um, knowing that you're allowed to be honest with everyone, you're allowed to be your authentic person. You're this is the person that God created me to be, and this is the ministry He's placed me in. So I can be, I can be me here, um, and then be transparent with the few that you trust, the few that are going to um, give you your, their honest opinion about the decisions that you need to make or or what's going on in your life. Um, I, I think, and will love you unconditionally. Yes, but. I think um, the idea that we have to appear perfect for everyone in ministry um, is a ministry killer uh, because and a, a, because we're definitely not going to be that. I think the way that you can keep yourself from being on a pedestal is by sharing your 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 flaws. Right. We don't go Authentic. into detail, but I've I've shared with our church that. That are we've we've had these awkward moments in our marriage, and I don't present it like we have everything put together. I'm still like I'll refer to something that I good did good as a dad, even when the kids were at home, and I would say, "But I'm not I'm not guaranteed how they're going to turn out because truthfully they're still in the oven, they're not done baking, you know that that kind of stuff is that it's we're still in in transition, and speaking about ourselves as people that are in process rather than people that are the example. One thing that Sean said was that he had to learn with boundaries to be honest with everyone, but transparent with a few. And that reminded us so much of the episode with Adam Mason um, on guilt of just talking about being a safe people picker and how, you know, you you definitely need to be authentic, but you have to watch who, who you say what to. And I think even for me personally, that has been a journey that I was just telling Ben that I've been on in that I've always prided myself on being authentic. Well, that means I'm honest, but I'm not transparent. And I've kind of mixed the two terms to where they, I, I have bled the two terms to where they mean the same thing, but they really don't mean the same thing. Stage performing Christians, which are pastors, platform leaders, 
they're always in great danger when they're saying that people need certain things, but they're not applying it themselves. So we say, you need to have a daily quiet time. You need to have a healthy prayer life. You need to have a few people who really know what's going on in the inside of your life. We're great at preaching that to you and that to other people, but we're not great at applying that to ourselves. I think what Sean was really saying there is we can no longer pretend that it's okay, that nobody knows what's really going on inside of me. And so he came to that point where he began to realize he needed more help and support. He needed an emotional support system. Mm-hmm. I thought the Sears term bookending was a really interesting concept. And he just describes in there how if they know they have a busy season, that they would have a, a break before and a break scheduled afterwards to know where they can find some rest. And I I thought that was so interesting. You know, ministry or not, if you're a parent, I know like for me when the kids were little and I was a stay-at-home mom, when you would say, when you would tell me ahead of time, hey, it's going to be a late night, I'm not going to be home until seven or eight, I knew in my mind that it was fine because I had prepared and I had like, I had a bookend at the end. But when you would say, oh, I'm going to be home at four and then, you know, at five say, turns out it's going to be late night. Like it was much more difficult to handle emotionally because I was not prepared for it. And so I loved what they said about that because I think you can handle a lot more when you know there's a there's a break or a light at the end of the tunnel. It goes back to unmet expectations creating frustration is that when you expect it to be a certain length of time and you prepare before and after for the rest involved, it's absorbable. I mean, it really is doable, but it's those unexpected things that aren't communicated. I think where this puts pressure on the, the couple though is to have a proactive communication about the future. And not just live day to day, week to week. And I would say a lot of pastors are much better at living week to week. Their minds tend to work that way next Sunday, the next service, uh, but may not have gifts to think about month to month or year to year. Uh, So it might be helpful to have some help in planning that. Well, I think just to look at an overall year, I mean, there are obvious busy times. Easter, VBS, Christmas. I mean, and so if you as a family or a couple can say, you know, not the week after, not the Sunday after VBS, because that's always, you know, a busy time, but the next weekend, if we could take off or whatever, then that helps you get through some of those busier seasons. Recently, I was with uh, the chief legal officer, Chris Knight, and we were talking about our kids. And he has a daughter that is athletic. And one day in a meeting, he had to leave and go watch her play. And He told me that one of the reasons he felt healthy to do that is that he had seen me do that in meetings. And it always meant a lot to him that as a leader, I was setting an example that it's okay to miss the remainder of a meeting to see your kid play. I think if leaders and pastors will recognize high tide and low tide, it gives the rest of the church staff permission to do that also. When you're off, be off, rest. When you're on, be on, work hard, but recognize the rhythms of life and ministry, and I think people around you will be healthier for it. Imagine that there's someone listening to this episode driving down the road in a Durango. (laughs) It's the same situation. She's done. She's going to call him here in five minutes. What would you say to her? She's in a marriage that she feels trapped. The ministry has taken the life out of her. How do you encourage her? I think I would say... Don't give up. Um, God created us, um, and He knows what is best for us, um, obviously. Um, something that I learned working with kids, it goes along with our curriculum. It's, it's one of their 
their basic truths. I can trust God no matter what. So if if I'm this this relationship isn't um, bringing harm to me and my children, um, then I'm going to trust God that He knows my situation. He knows what's best for me, and I'm going to keep trying. I'm not going to give up. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stand um, firm and confront that that awkward situation, that confrontation head on because this marriage is worth it. It's it's not not the church plant. Obviously, it is important, but my marriage is worth my fight. And I would just say, don't give up. Give it a little bit more time. Um, I would say that uh, you need to put more time into your marriage, into your kids, because God can do um, with less time more than what you can do with more time without God's blessing. Um, because we're putting 40, 50, 60 hours into our church plant, and we're running our families into the ground. God can replace you in the pulpit, but He's not going to replace you in your home. So I know where I'd rather be replaced. I don't want to lose the church. I don't want to fail as a church planter. But what I want more than a healthy church is for my son to respect me, for my daughter to say, I want to marry a guy like dad. And I, I, if the only way my daughter could respect me is if I was um, a real estate agent, I'd rather be a real estate agent with my wife and my three kids than a pastor of a large church without them. I mean, and, and it's not like, and what I mean by without them, it's not even that my wife would have to divorce me. If I go home and my wife doesn't adore me, but all these strangers in the, in the pew do, I feel like I've failed. Uh, I, it's cliche, your primary calling is, is to your family. It is. It is, though. It is. Anybody can pastor this church, but there's only one person that God's called to be Garrett's dad, and that's me. And I'd rather Garrett think I'm amazing than you or any of your listeners think I'm amazing. I don't know any of them, but I'm going to know Garrett for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Glass House. We would love to include you in the conversation. If something stuck out to you in today's episode, let us hear from you or a topic you'd love to see us tackle in the future or just any question you want to fire at Lindley and me. Email us at president at lifeway.com. The Glass House is hosted by Lifeway, executive produced by Joy Almond, produced and edited by Angie Elkins Media, original music by Robert Elkins, sound engineering by Dale Sandberg, and artwork by Cameron Spooner.